0: make it real compared to what I don't want a long funeral and if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy tell them not to talk too long tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel peace prize that isn't important I'd like for somebody to say that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody yes if you want to say that I was a drum major say that I was a drum major for justice say that I was a drum major for peace and that's all I want to say if I can help somebody then my living will not be in vain.
1: Coming up on the next Janice Adams show we mark 50 years since the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King with a panel discussion about what led up to that moment what happened afterward and as always where do we go from here. First the news.
2: Of course, this whole program is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Martin Luther King. You know that, anyway. Once upon this planet Earth Lived a man of humble birth Preaching love and freedom for his fellow men. He was dreaming of the day Peace would come to us to stay And he spread this message all across the land
1: April 4th, 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee
0: Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord.
1: Dr. King's last public message less than twenty four hours before he was killed. Where were you when? What did it mean in your life? What was its effect on American society? And what does it mean for us now, fifty years later? With us on the Janice Adams Show today are three guests who experienced that time and lived to tell the tale. Dr. Irma McLaurin in Raleigh, W. Mark Colfson in New Pulse, Dr. Ted Landsmark in Boston. A quick note, the sound quality of this first segment is poor due to technical difficulties, but we thought the conversation too important not to air. Irma McLaurin, where were you when...
3: I was living in Chicago at the time. I was going over to my girlfriend's house. And so I think all of us were just stunned. We had had the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and we had struggled through that. And I don't think anyone believed anything like this could happen again. And then chaos just exploded in Chicago. And Irma, who are you today? I am an activist anthropologist. I'm a former university president at Shaw University, a Black feminist author and speaker, and I have recently founded the Irma McLaurin Black Feminist Archive at the University of Massachusetts Amherst.
1: Mark Colson, where were you when?
4: I was probably about eight years old, so I was probably outside playing, and my family really insulated me from the news at the time.
1: And who are you today?
4: Today, I'm the dean of the Sojourner Truth Library at the State University of New York. I am a a person in a journey of discovery right now. For a long time, I didn't see myself as someone on the vanguard studying the history of African descended people and its impact on me. And so I'm I'm going through a real growth process uh, that has led me to connect with faculty here, with community members, uh, to try and build the archives of the Sojourner Truth Library to really represent the legacy of Sojourner Truth.
1: And Dr. Theodore Landsmark in Boston, where were you when?
4: I
5: was in a fraternal meeting with a number of my college classmates. One of my... uh, Fraternal Brothers gave me a high sign that uh, we ought to leave the meeting, which we did, white fellow, and he said, we need to go down to Atlanta right now to see if we can help with the funeral arrangements. And so within an hour, we'd thrown together a change of clothing, got in his car, and uh, drove to his family's home in Virginia, uh, where we spent the night, and then continued on to Atlanta, where we spent the next day doing support work, fundraising, and getting the word out about uh, what kinds of responses people could make to the assassination.
1: In the interest of full disclosure, Ted and I are first cousins, and I remember your calling me from the road to say you were about to make that trip and don't tell the family.
5: Well, I was a little concerned that two college students, one black and one white, driving South, might put us at some risk, and I didn't think that it made sense to let them know until we'd actually gotten to Atlanta.
1: And who are you today?
5: I head the Dukakis Center for Urban and Regional Policy at Northeastern University, where we've been working on issues of the rule of law uh, in a uh, civil society, and uh, questions of income inequality,
1: Thank you, and I am Janice Adams, host of The Janice Adams Show, where I was when was in my first job, newly minted graduate from college at Saks Fifth Avenue. I was in the lower-level glove department office, where I was there as their first African-American executive trainee. Someone came into the office and told us to turn on the basement radio, and we heard the news, what had happened. Uh, We all left. The store closed. We headed out. The next morning, I came into work. Saks Fifth Avenue was completely rimmed by police. I came into work completely dressed in white for mourning as a sign of mourning. And as I approached the door, Saks Fifth Avenue, the police stopped me. They roughed me up, demanded to know where I had stolen my own coat. And as things escalated, they dragged me out into the gutter and seized my handbag and began to put me in handcuffs and go through that whole thing. A young white colleague whisked by, completely unaware, but he actually, I think, saved my life that day because he simply said, you know, hi, Janice, and just kept on going. And I said, you see, they know me here, at which point the police marched me up to the personnel office to show everybody in the store that they had this young woman in handcuffs. And that was my morning after. I am now an author, historian, and talk show host and producer. But I tell that story because in my own experience, and in the experience I think of those of us here today, the question is, what changed in our lives in that moment? And what changed for the nation? Irma, would you like to begin on that?
3: I would say that for me, it was a loss of hope. Kennedy's assassination was the first media spectacle. And watching, and before his assassination, watching the, the fire hoses and the dogs. I mean, we were exposed to this part of America that we had read about and heard about, but hadn't really seen live actually happening. And I think King's assassination just really sort of focused us on the fact, on the question of where is this country going? Uh, as my mother used to say, it looked like we were going to hell in a handbasket. And so I think for the country, it was we were just stunned into believing that things were changing. And then to have this kind of event happen sort of felt like we were being pulled backwards into that segregated Jim Crow lynching anti-Black environment that we thought we were moving past that we were somehow going to overcome it you know as the song would say for me personally there were a lot of transitions in the summer of 1968 i witnessed white people being pulled off the bus i witnessed buildings being burned i had to learn how to hit the floor when we heard pops outside we didn't know if they were tires backfiring or guns and after King's assassination and the riots, which devastated the west side of Chicago uh, and was never, ever rebuilt, I lived in occupied Chicago. I had to go to the store and to the laundromat with the National Guards, with rifles in the streets. So for me, it was a moment of, I guess, coming of age uh, in a very stark way. And a few weeks after this had happened in June, I actually left Chicago to attend a summer program uh, at the Yale Summer High School, and I was one of 140 students who participated in this program, only 30 of us were women, and they brought kids from all over, some from Upward Bound. Yale was recruiting young Black men from New Haven. The newspaper in New Haven described us as urban disadvantaged youth come to New Haven, Uh, so we were sort of marked in that way. And we had to navigate the anger and the hostility and the tensions in that small space that were actually happening, occurring out there in the larger world.
1: Mark, how did this impact you?
4: For me as a little kid, it was mostly just so strange that the adults were so upset. It rattled me to see them speculating about what this meant for the future. I remember also that there was a lot of violence. Uh, You know, I remember that there were riots. But you have to understand from where I was coming from, um, my parents were strivers. Uh, They believed in the model of integration that I think kind of got blasted into a whole different level by the King assassination and the riots that followed because we went from thinking about integration to thinking about black power. Uh, That's my sense of what was going on at the time. But for me personally, my family, we didn't live in a real black community. Uh, We were always striving to move up and out as it were. Uh, So a lot of the the day-to-day, I felt very separated from. I didn't have those kinds of experiences of being right there where the violence was happening or uh, where the tension was happening.
1: Where were you living? So
4: in 1968, we were still living in Mount Airy. My mom was still a bank teller. My dad was an engineer at Burroughs Corporation. And uh, we were about to move to an even more isolated part of the country. Upstate New York, Vestal, New York, where I actually went to a junior high school called the African Road Junior High School, and where I was probably one of maybe 15 Black kids in a school of 800 or something.
3: At the African
1: Road?
4: On the African Road.
1: Wow. And what was the African Road? Does that allude to slavery, or what was the African Road?
4: This is a classic. We have no idea. And it wasn't
1: a it wasn't a question. <laughs> that, that that's that's a great supposition type type story. I um I've already mentioned that Ted and I were our cousins and I remember when the family first went up to visit him when he was at St. Paul's Prep School. We drove into town, we slowed down, and someone came over to the car and they pointed us and they didn't even ask a question. They just said if you go down this way, you make a left here, you keep going there, you'll you'll get where you want to go, welcome to town. And so we didn't know what was going on, so we, we just did that. And when we got there, we got to somebody's house. We didn't know what it was, and we turned around. That wasn't St. Paul's. We came back, and we started to ask the directions of someone else, and they sent us right back to the same house. And finally it dawned on us... We were being sent to the only house where there was a black family in the entire town, and so, hence, the reason nobody asked us where we wanted to go because they just assumed they were very friendly. But they just assumed that that was where we were going. So, who knows what the African road could be? It could be, um, it could be that, or it could be something a little bit more serious.
4: Thanks to the miracle of the internet, in the, in the time that we've been talking. I was able to find the Vestal Historian website where they say that the African Road was named for the African American families who owned farms at the top of the hill. It was originally called
1: Hoteling Road. I'm not sure what that's pronounced, but there it is. <laughs> there it is. The only Black family in town. So. <laughs> Um, here's how you find it that's how you find it and and we have a librarian on the phone dean of the library and there's the answer to that ted what did it mean for you you've told us this story about how you and your friend jump in the car you head down to atlanta but you had also marched with dr king and selma
6: we had the good fortune of growing up in a family where there was a high level of uh, political activism. Our grandfather had been a Garveyite and a uh, regular follower of activities uh, involving apartheid in South Africa. So as young kids growing up, we were afforded uh, the opportunity to go to the March on Washington, where I first heard Dr. King speak. Um, We went to uh, talks that he did in New York, and um, as a uh, student at Yale, um, I was involved with civil rights activities to the extent that I went to the march at Selma, not as a marcher, but really as um, a college student who was raising funds and uh, providing uh, backup, as, as many of us did at that point. So when the assassination took place, Dr. King was someone I felt I knew and had already been inspired by, and it became clear to me at that moment that the work of civil rights and social justice was not something that I could be involved with just as a part-time activity. I had seen the Voting Rights Act passed, and I'd seen other activities that had come to what I thought was a successful Fruition. Uh, but it then became clear that there was a lot more work that had to be done and that as a young person, I needed to be engaged for the rest of my life in that kind of activity. And, and that sealed uh, my fate in some respects uh, in terms of uh, encouraging me to go on to law school and then to become involved in uh,
1: Janice Adams show after the break.
2: He was for equality.
1: Here on The Janice Adams Show with our special tribute to Dr. King marking his assassination 50 years ago. Our guests Dr. Irma McLaurin in Raleigh, W. Mark Colveson in Newport, Dr. Ted Landsmark in Boston. Ted is my cousin. As we taped this show, we got news of Linda Brown's death. Her father was the lead plaintiff, alphabetically, on her behalf in the landmark Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court school desegregation decision. What happened after that is a story in itself. In the wake of Brown, Emmett Till, a 14-year-old boy from Chicago on a visit with his family in Money, Mississippi, was murdered by rabid segregationists, outraged that he may or may not have, winked at a white woman as though that could justify lynching a child. Among the lesser-known facts, Emmett had shared pictures of his school friends back in Chicago, among them a white girl. His murderers vented their racist rage. Months later, Rosa Parks keeps her historic seat on a Montgomery, Alabama bus. Why did she do it? She does not say her feet are tired, which is the nonsensical myth still heard. I thought of Emmett, said Mrs. Parks, and stood up for Emmett. Stood up to America by sitting down. That demonstration of conscience by Rosa Parks propels the 385-day Montgomery bus boycott that brought its 26-year-old leader, fresh from graduate school, to international prominence, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., launching the modern civil rights movement. At that very moment, Mrs. Parks goes to court, threatened with jail time for violating the doctrine of white supremacy's code, At the very moment Mrs. Parks goes to court threatened with jail time for violating the Doctrine of White Supremacy's Code on the morning of December 5, 1955, it all becomes personal for Ted and me. Our immigrant grandmother, Myra carlisle Landsmark goes to federal court in New York. To become a U.S. citizen that day, she pledges allegiance to a flag that promises her rights in theory denied both her and Mrs. Parks, in fact. Six weeks later, the family commits her two only grandchildren, Ted and me, to the movement. Fourth graders, we become northern school desegregation pioneers. For our role as two of the four test children selected to break de facto segregation in New York schools, we would be introduced to Dr. King at the Riverside Church later that year. Indeed, as my grandmother would say, in this world, all things are one. With that, back to our panel and a question. What really changed in the U.S. when that bullet was fired in 1968? Mark Colson begins.
7: I continue to think about the journey in my own life um, as reflected back in the ancestors' my parents' journey. Uh, My father grew up in Mississippi as a sharecropper. Um, He was born in 1925 in Mississippi. And he fled um, as a teenager, I believe. Uh, and, uh, and joined the armed forces and ended up in Philadelphia, where he met my mother. Uh, and I, th- I think about um, the notion that there was always violence, um, and, and people knew that there was going to be violence, there was going to be complicity uh, in, in law enforcement and the judicial system. Um, but somehow uh, it, it seems to me that there was a sense that, that stuff had to change. It just couldn't couldn't keep happening this way, and and I and I think the violence is um, comes back so more powerfully with with the assassination of Dr. King because here is a a man who dedicated his life and uh, and who was joined by so many others to nonviolence and yet is cut down um, by violence, and it's it's the innocence of a of a child and and the heroism of this nonviolent leader. Uh, kind of bracketed uh, by violence on both ends. Um, and I don't, I don't know that there's a way to construct meaning out of that except to say that it is the nature of an oppressive society that violence will always uh, be a part of, of its politics, if you will. Uh, so I don't know that, that something radically changed except in the minds of people to say we have to fight harder for, uh, for our rights and stop trying to just integrate and try to kind of blend in. That's my thought. Ted? I think that there was an emotional
6: resonance in Dr. King's assassination that had not occurred when the Voting Rights Act was passed, or when a number of kind of intellectual approaches were brought to the fore. A lot of people were very optimistic that there was a movement. People of color generally, and African Americans in particular, were making progress. And then to have a man of peace and nonviolence cut down through violence, I think sickened a lot of people. I think it it brought home in a very emotional way uh, there was a visceral consequence to speaking out in terms of social justice and, and racial equality, uh, and I think that that affected a lot of people in very emotional ways. Certainly, it led to the riots in a great many cities, the, the civil disturbances, and, and a sense of uh, frustration and anger and disappointment.
8: Irma? I would echo some of that. I understand why people call it Chirac, because I lived in occupied Chicago. If it wasn't occupied before the National Guard, it was occupied by the Chicago police force. And so we were accustomed to brutality. We were accustomed to the lines that were drawn. And I just want to bring to everyone's attention is that Emmett Till was killed in the South, but in 1966, Jerome Huey, was killed in Chicago, in Cicero. He went there to get a job, and it was his death at a mob of white teenagers that spurred a lot of activism and had people invite King to come. And I wanna just read what he wrote after visiting there. Quote, I've been in many demonstrations across the South, but I can say that I had never seen, even in Mississippi, mobs as hostile and as hate-filled, as in Chicago, end quote. And so I grew up in a very segregated, residential segregated place, and I think that we thought that with desegregation, with the passing of legislation, that we were shifting to a new kind of society, a new America. I think Kennedy had filled us with some sense that we were all part of this promise, you know, of, of a country that its citizens were dedicated to you know, moving it forward. And I think King's assassination was in some ways a wake-up call, a loss of, of tremendous innocence, in which we came to realize that nonviolence was probably not going to resolve everything, and that leaders who, who advocated for changing this sort of deep-seated white supremacist beliefs and behavior were at risk. And it became very fearful. And at the same time, it was empowering. Uh, King pointed out to me what I always knew, which is why I left Chicago, and I've never been back except to visit, is that I needed to get out of that space because of how it was constructed. And I felt if I stayed there, I would just wither away. And I think on a national level, it was kind of a wake-up call is that we have to do more than practice nonviolence. Uh, That legislation alone is not going to help. Uh, I think that's where you begin to see the momentum of people running for political office and knowing that they had to be inside the belly of the monster in order to change it and not simply talk about it or through you know or or protest against it.
1: Well, this intransigence of the north, and I'm glad you raised it in nineteen seventy six Ted felt the, uh, it personally living in Boston
6: yeah i I became. Uh something of a poster child for the expression of racist feelings in Boston when I was the subject of a Pulitzer Prize-winning photograph of a group of uh, high school kids uh, attacking um, an African-American lawyer with the American flag. That was me. Oh, wow. um, uh, It it, it was um, ironic, certainly, that the person they um, attacked Uh, without knowing uh, who I was, was someone who um, had been involved in uh, civil rights and social justice activities at that point for more than a decade, uh, starting back in college. And and so when that happened, I was ready, really, to um, uh, speak publicly on uh, the issue of racism in the North. I I didn't uh, blame the particular kids who... Were involved, but I blamed uh, the political leaders and the system, uh, which had uh, surreptitiously, um, in some respects, and overtly in others, perpetuated racist attitudes in a city like Boston for uh, many decades. And uh, you know, it, it reached national attention through uh, busing and, and, particularly, through that photograph. But um, it is certainly the case. Even now, uh, that many attitudes that have led to racialist outcomes, that is to say, large discrepancies between the attainment of white families and the achievements and attainment of uh, families of color, those, those have been perpetuated in a great many northern cities. In the north, we like to look at the south as though somehow the culture of the south is degraded because of a racial history, but the fact of the matter is that the North is at least as involved um, as uh, any part of the South is, and has often made a lot less progress than has been made
7: in cities like Charleston and elsewhere.
1: Indeed. Mark?
7: Yeah, yeah. one of the things when you're talking about that time that comes back to me is a photograph that appeared on the, I think, front page of the Philadelphia newspapers when I was a child in 1970. Uh, The then police chief, Frank Rizzo, ordered the raid of the headquarters of the Black Panther Party, had those men stripped naked on the public street uh, as a gesture of power to the black community that this was the official Philadelphia response to any attempt at black empowerment, and it was intended to be terrifying. I think it certainly it horrified me as a child that police chief Frank Rizzo you know proudly boasted that there were no riots in Philadelphia, but the reality was that 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 was a very brutal um, you know, police force in many ways, and that in Philadelphia there was a great deal of violence perpetrated against families that attempted to integrate. It just didn't really make the headlines. Uh, and, and if we were to start Maybe. talking about the, the news coverage, um, you know, by northern newspapers of the south and the relative lack of coverage of similar violence in the north, I think that could be a very interesting conversation.
1: Well, you know, it's absolutely. interesting. Absolutely. But it's interesting that you would say that because, of course, the, the history is there. It's what we have in the North is the greater level of denial. It's not the violence of whether or not you're always being shot at. It is the violence as a psychological tool of saying we can do with you as we please. That's what that was about in Philadelphia. Stripping these men naked in the middle of the street. They didn't have to shoot them. They had destroyed them emotionally. And then it was the job of those men, their families, to try to come back from that.
7: You destroyed them and sent that message um, to the rest of the community um, that this is what we think of you. This is, uh, this is what you mean to us.
1: We, as black people, know what terrorism is because we have lived in the United States. Next year will be 400 years since the first documented boatload of Africans enchained landed in the United States and we are still talking about these kinds of issues. With Dr. King being murdered when he was, assassinated when he was, it was said because it was the Easter season. People at that point said you know, Jesus died for our sins, but then we also began to say wait a minute, Dr. King died for America's sins. That's what happened that day
2: He was not a violent man Tell me folks if you can Just why why was he shot down the other day?
1: Thank you, Dr. King. More on the Janice Adams Show after the break
2: it mountain top, cause he'd seen the mountain top. Hm. and he knew he could not stop, always living with the threat of death ahead. We're back
1: here on the Janice Adams Show with our special tribute to Dr. King marking his assassination 50 years ago. Our guest panel, Irma McLaurin in Raleigh, W. Mark Colfson in New Paltz, Ted Landsmark in Boston, Ted is my cousin. On the positive side of what happened in the wake of his death, I do think we need to talk about the changes that did take place in the society. And I'm, I'm not talking about Pollyanna changes. You know, we, got, we, we solved things. No, we did not. But what did happen were the people who saw what had happened, as you said, Mark, came together, galvanized and said, we have to do it another way. The empowering of certain people, Ted referenced it as well, what happened in terms of propelling the women's movement forward? The anti-war movement and also economically, things began to open up a little bit. So on this message of change, the question is, where did we go from here then? Where do we go from here now? We are, we don't have to spend a lot of time defining it because we know it so. We are seeing some of these same things come back some of the same atrocities come back.
6: I think that the attention that the Black Lives Matter movement has directed not only at the very visible aggressions against people of color, but also at the microaggressions that occur in language, um, in classrooms, in financial transactions, in, in cultural settings. I think that the attention that is now being paid to a number of uh, cultural and and legal issues is raising the likelihood that people will talk about these issues in a way that focuses on outcomes and in a way that uh, enables us to ask, what are the things that work uh, to uh, overcome the inequalities, and what are the things that don't work? How do we deal with things in a way to produce the kinds of results we want.
8: I think what we see even in this, and the way that Black Lives Matter activists, uh, founders are being described, there's now a new term called cultural terrorist. The actions of black folks moving towards progress, trying to change this country, is still seen as something that must be disrupted, that must be punished, that must be uh, suppressed. And so I think what King gave us, he knew, he talked about the fact that he knew he would die. And still he persisted. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's all that any of us can do. I actually had a, a print of the photograph in which you are in uh, that a young artist gave me some years ago. I, I have it in my house. And, you know, I was at the University of Massachusetts where those Boston students brought their own anger and hostility and white supremacist attitudes, you know, to the campus. And we had to deal with it there. And so I think along the way, all of us are struggling with, you know, have we made progress? Probably, you know, in in some ways. But I think we are at a critical moment in American history where we are losing our moral compass. We are permitting people who are basically, you know, robbing us of the the very basic concept of democracy, whether it worked perfectly or not, it at least was something to hang on to as an aspiration. And that is being eroded at this moment. And I think we have to begin to look to the ballot box as being even more critical now than it was post-King's assassination, because I think people really did take to the ballot uh, to, to begin to mobilize around political power. And I think we have to get back to that moment again across all generations.
7: I have so many thoughts on this uh, that my head is kind of exploding, but I, I, I'm so ad- admiring of the LGBTQ communities' uh, approach to making change, because I see uh, African Americans as a minority in and a, and a majority white culture, um, and, and LGBTQ people are an even smaller minority. And yet today we have marriage equality. Um, and for me, uh, what what I've learned is the absolute necessity of individual speaking. Um, I believe that what changes people's minds is not grand scale uh, demonstrations or activities, but person to person speaking about those most difficult subjects. Uh, I think in Buddhism there is the notion that you walk toward. The thing that terrifies you, Uh, and that is where your wisdom lies. And for me, this is a country that is terrified to have conversation around um, racial discrimination. They're terrified because um, white people um, believe deep, and this is kind of—I'm just going to say it—believe deep down that there is something very wrong, and it's very hard to to own that. This is why in the library. Uh, I have been working to 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 uh, host conversations on racism and sexism and exclusion um, on a weekly basis because it seems to me that the, the the necessity is to develop the tools among all people to speak the truth and that's what's happening with these students in Florida and it's what happened with the LGBTQ community people said I am one of those people that you despise, and they said it to their neighbors, their, their parents, their, their uncles and aunts. Um, you can no longer deny my humanity because I am here and I am not going to be quiet. And I think that the courage that that takes is also the freedom um, that comes from taking charge of your own story.
8: I, I'm going to have to say... I think you have to operate it at at two levels. One is at the the personal and interpersonal, and I think there is much to be said, but let us be clear that the LGBT movement took a lot of its action and its practices from the civil rights movement. There was never lynching. There has been tremendous violence, but there has not been systemic, systematic. And they had a lot of privilege. They also had white men who had a lot of money, that they were able to legally navigate things. And so we, we we have to sort of understand that, yes, it is important, change minds. You know, Janice, you know that my model, you know, change minds, change hearts, change behavior. You achieve transformation. But you also have to change structures, too. You have those conversations. It's a good place to start. But marriage equality didn't come about because people stood up. It came about because people took political action and put pressure on on politicians and, and had attorneys who were able to move legislation.
1: However, I do want to, though, amend that a little bit, Irma, because... When when you look at the LGBTQ community and and you see where they are now and we act as though this happened in such a short period of time it did not, um, especially when you look at the religious underpinnings of millennia of terrorism against people who were quote different and what is what is that phrase the the name the the love. That cannot the
7: love be. that dare not speak its name. Exactly.
1: Yes. You know, we've had all these euphemisms for it. We, we have had all these words for it over the years. And so they did experience the stonings. They experienced the lynchings. And I think one of the things that I've learned from this experience is to, to some extent, stop the siloing of the horror. By that I mean... It is all a human rights violation. It's almost like the divide and conquer conversation. If and, and I'm not addressing this to Irma. I'm just talking about it in terms of my life lesson on a broad scale, that when I get beyond these labels, especially when I talk about school desegregation and what I experienced as a child, I, I have come to the point where I'm, I just say to people, I don't want to hear your problems. I don't want to hear about how you were raised racist or whatever your problem is. I just want to ask one question. Who raised you people? Who raises someone to spit on another mother's child? I don't want to hear about democracy. I want to hear about decency. You know, I just want to hear about the fundamental basics that we keep giving ourselves permission to hop over so that we can talk about these noxious ideas and excuses to commit atrocities against other people for whatever the reason is that we choose to commit them. So, I ask each of you, in Dr. King's name, in the name of your own lives and activism, what do you want to leave this conversation with other people having heard from you?
6: In this year, where there were so many transformative activities that took place uh, a half century ago, we do have to spend time assessing what has and hasn't changed. But most importantly, we need to pass on to today's generations, the use of tools, the uh, passion, uh, the, the commitment to change, uh, the knowledge that there are things that we may not understand about how social media may have changed the nature of community formation and the like, and that we have things to learn, but that it, it needs to be understood that uh, progress takes place because one generation passes on its knowledge to the next, and now is our time to do that.
1: Irma, what about you? Uh, What I do currently now
8: is to use my pen as my armor, as my weapon, and I write expert testimonies for people seeking political asylum on the basis of gender bias, whether that is being LGBTQ, whether that is being a woman uh, faced with violence from other countries coming here. And the irony is that... (laughs) I can actually advance their causes more powerfully than I can the internal problems that are in this country. Mm. I think people have to own their own truth that some of us walk with both oppression and privilege and understand where we walk with privilege and how that privilege is predicated perhaps on someone else's oppression and own it. And I think people have to find their own ways of fighting. It's not just about people. You know, it is about the structures that even that people find themselves implicated in and are afraid to, to to shake them. So on a personal level, they may not agree, but on a structural level, they just go along with the program. So I think that people have to own their truth and then find ways to keep eating away and eroding, you know, the, the system that King gave his life for which is a system of oppression in this country in the midst of a democratic concept or
1: ideal. Thank you and Mark. Hmm, Audrey Lord
7: said that you cannot destroy the master's house using the master's tools and by that she meant that oppression cannot be dismantled through oppression. Uh it's a very hard teaching. Um and I think it was at the core of uh, Dr. King's nonviolence to say that if I lose myself in, in my anger toward my oppressor, then my oppressor wins. But if I can show my oppressor that it is their anger and fear which is acting on them, that is how I can, I can bring about change. When I expose to my oppressor, their violence and the violence in their heart and soul, and it's 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 what you were uh, talking about, Janice, with with uh, what what lets a person spit on another person. How were you raised? Um, what allows that violence to be acted out? Um, so, for me, the goal is to remind as many people as I can that compassion is actually the only way that we make progress. Uh, that only through recognizing the absolute humanity of every single person uh, that we come to understand where the violence is hiding and why and bring out uh, the humanity.
1: Well, I am going to close with the words that my grandparents used to fuel both Ted and me, my grandmother would always look at us and she would kind of sigh sometimes, but her basic philosophy was in this world, all things are one. And my grandfather would come back and he would say, and in this world, let no one contaminate your mind. So with gratitude to all our ancestors, With gratitude to those who inspire us all today, with definite thanks and in tribute to Dr. King. Thank you all for joining me today. Mark Colson, Irma McLaurin, Ted Landsmark, it's been a privilege to have you on the show today.
2: I may
0: not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land.
1: Today on the Janice Adams Show, thank you, Dr. King, for more about our guests, the assassination and its aftermath, to see that historic photo of Ted, and a link to Nina Simone's amazing rendition of Why visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. From the studios of WJFF, post-production Jason Dole, The Janice Adams Show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved.